If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Our text today is going to be verse 8 through 12. Uh, it is good to be back with you today. I had the opportunity to be in Lima, Peru uh, for the last week or so, working with our friends at Jesus El Camino Iglesia. And they send their appreciation to you as well as their greetings as we continue to pray and partner uh, with them. It was a blessed time of encouragement. We were able to share the gospel with a number of people and preach and do some training and just be an encouragement to the believers there. There are some exciting opportunities that we have upcoming as we move forward in that partnership in South America where we have been since 2017. Uh, Pastor Isaiah also went along with me and really did a great job in the mission, and I know uh, a number of you have been to that particular location, and more of you will be going, and I'd ask you to join us in prayer as we uh, continue our service there in that part of the world and are excited about what God is going to continue to do. Last week, Pastor Danny introduced Second Timothy with a message on a foundation for faithfulness. And he focused on salvation through Jesus as the cornerstone of a faithful life and how we are called and gifted to serve. And then the importance of encouraging one another to multiply disciples from one generation to the next. And he said this in part, life in Christ establishes us for a life of faithfulness, no matter the circumstances. We are called to live a faithful life to our Savior. When Paul wrote 2 Timothy, uh, Timothy had been in Ephesus for around four years. It had also been about that amount of time uh, since Timothy had received the first letter from Paul. A decade or more had passed since Timothy had left home to go on mission with Paul and to serve with him on the second and the third missionary journeys. At this point, Paul finds himself in a Roman prison cell. His death by execution under Nero, the Roman emperor, was approaching. Nero was a madman. He was crazy. He had burned half the city of Rome and then blamed it on the Christians for his own strategic purposes. The letter provides a picture of a man who is settling his accounts. He's coming to the end of the road in his life. And he's encouraging Timothy to continue on after his departure. And he wants him, in part, to continue teaching sound doctrine, but also encouraging the people to live out what they knew, and that would be paramount in their testimonies, and it would be important, but it would not be easy. I've entitled today's message, Do Not Be Ashamed of Jesus, with the big idea coming specifically from the text and the passage before us. As we think about this subject, we know that fear can cause us to be ashamed of Jesus. In fact, I think fear is one of the greatest obstacles that any of us could face in our Christian lives. Uh, We might have a fear of not knowing what we're going to say or how people are going to respond or what people are going to think of us. Uh, Fear also comes to us through a lack of faith in not believing that God can bring about a profound change in a person's life. And we're living in the midst of this growing post-Christian culture in the Western part of the world. And as believers in Jesus, we're dealing with increased hostility and increasing marginalization as Christians. If we articulate and communicate clearly 
the historic understanding of biblical teaching on key issues of our faith, we will, without a doubt, either encounter hostility or marginalization in our faith at some point. We should not be surprised about this. Jesus warned us that it would be a reality, but fear can do some things to us. It can cause us to go silent because we don't want other people to think poorly of us for what we believe. We don't want to upset other people. Uh, Fear can cause us to compromise our beliefs when your heart is led astray by the culture and it's not driven by the word. You might be tempted to crumble under the pressure of it or to cave in to the beliefs of the world and to give up your own convictions. And that's certainly not the way. And it's amazing to me how God uses ordinary people like us as light in the darkness to go in the midst of these difficulties and be bold witnesses for Jesus. I like the way Oswald Chambers put it. He said, all through history, God has chosen and used nobodies uh, because their unusual dependence on him and made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Timothy's ministry was marked by power, love, and self-discipline. He was a man who was not ashamed to testify about our Lord. And it's a message to us that now is not the time for us to go silent. It's not the time for us to compromise our beliefs. Now is the time to step forward boldly and lovingly in our faith and not be ashamed of Jesus. So I want to show you, first of all, how God saves us and calls us with a holy calling. God saves us and calls us with a holy calling. Let's pick up reading in verse 8, and I'll go through verse 10. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. Verse 9, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Verse 10. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So he tells us, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. I think that's a message to us that we should stand tall in our faith. Now, shame in a negative sense is a feeling about yourself that comes over you because of uh, involvement in something that either society finds as unacceptable or is overtly sinful against the Lord and you're ashamed of what you've done. In that regard, shame can be a good thing for us. Uh, If we've truly done something shameful, then shame is the right response. Shame because of fear, however, of other people And how they're going to respond to our faith is not a good thing. The cross of Christ was considered to be a scandal in those days. Crucifixion was reserved for the very worst of criminals. And it was viewed as a symbol of disgrace and dishonor. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he said this in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 23. He said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. 
I think it is possible to be ashamed of the name of Christ, to be ashamed of the people of Christ, and to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, none of which are good. Shame is a friend of fear. I believe if fear is defeated, if fear is overcome, then shame can be overcome and we can be confident in what we believe, how we communicate it to others, and how God uses us to share the good news with people who need to hear it. Stand tall in what you believe. Be confident in what you believe. Overcome fear by the power of God. And then we are to share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. So the message is not only stand tall in what you believe, the message is suffer well. Now, I know this is not a popular idea. Who wants to suffer after all? We try to avoid it pretty much at any cost. But rather than being ashamed, we are called to be willing to suffer for the gospel just as the Apostle Paul did. And Jesus said this in John 15 and verse 18 and following. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world, and this is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Jesus, in effect, draws a line. And he says, if you are in me, don't be surprised if the world hates you. They hated me first. This is not something unusual or something that is unexpected. And if you don't belong to the world, they're not going to love you and embrace you and welcome your ideas. If you belong to the world, you're going to be running lockstep with them and there's not going to be any friction. So therefore, they're going to think everything that you're saying and doing is okay. He says, but no servant is greater than his master. So in other words, look at how they treated me. That's what Jesus is saying. And if they treated me this way, then why would you think that it's going to be easy for you? He said, but the ones who obey my teaching, they're going to obey yours also. He's talking about the people of God and the church of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus said of Paul when he saved him and called him, he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. What a responsibility. What a calling that had been placed on his life. Persecution for the faith is inevitable for serious followers of Jesus. We should not fear it. We must endure it. Paul was in prison at this point. He had been beaten and exposed to death and again and again because of his faithfulness. The Bible says that he was shipwrecked and he had to be constantly on the move because people were after him. He experienced dangers, dangers from rivers and bandits and fellow Jews and Gentiles. And the Bible says he experienced dangers in the city and dangers in the country and dangers on the sea and dangers from false believers. He knew what it was like to be hungry and thirsty and cold and naked. And on top of that, he felt the weight of the believers and the churches that he had shared the gospel with and seen formed and raised up as bodies of believers. That was a heavy load that the Apostle Paul was carrying. 
And yet he reminds us that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. So he's saying to us, listen, Timothy and the church and all who follow, who call on the name of Christ, you're to stand tall in your faith, be confident in it. You're to suffer well and don't run from difficulty as you engage the darkness with the light. And then he says you are to serve in holiness because you've been called with a holy calling. Grace was given to us, according to this passage of Scripture, before time began. Now, all of a sudden and all at once, we stepped off into some deep theological waters. And I want you to think about it this way. You and I think about time in a linear progression. Our lives are marked out by the beginning when we were born and the end when we die and whatever happens in between. All of you, if you had the opportunity today, could give examples of those milestones in your life where uh, things happened that were important and significant and they meant something to you. And that's how you think about it. It's from one point to the next. Our God is eternal. And because our God is eternal, he is not bound by time. And when he sees things, he sees it all at once. He's omniscient. Because he is outside of time, he sees the beginning from the end, and he sees everything in between. And I think this is a reminder to us of that very thing. But even more so, it's a reminder to us that salvation is all of God, and it is undeserved. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, many of you have memorized, by grace you've been saved through faith, and, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Titus 3 and verse 5 says, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. We receive the gift of salvation from God when we repent of our sins and we believe in Jesus. We take hold of the gospel. We believe in the Son of God who came and lived and died and now lives again. And we receive the, the gift of eternal life from him. If salvation depended on us in any way, we would not attain it. If I had to earn my salvation, I could not. If keeping my salvation depended on my efforts, I would not be able to keep it. It is all because of the blood of Jesus. It is all because of God's grace and mercy in your life that when you trust in Jesus, he declares you righteous and you are now and eternally a child of God. We are to stand tall, suffer well, and serve in holiness. Now he notes here that all of this has been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The grace of God was made visible in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. Our word epiphany means an appearance or manifestation from God. And it comes from the Greek word translated as appearing. Now, I want to make an important connection here because this is the only time that the word refers to the first coming of Christ in the New Testament. Every other time it refers 
to the return of Christ. So he's speaking specifically of the mission for which Jesus came. And the idea that he appeared points us to the fact of his deity. That there was never a time when the Son of God was not. He has always been eternally so. But there was a point in time in which he came into the world. So we have the Son of God who is uh, God, uh, the perfect representation as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one in essence, three in person, co-equal and co-eternal, the Son of God leaving the glory of heaven and coming to this world that we're in to manifest God in the flesh. So we have the one who is eternally the I am. That's how he described himself in John chapter 8. But the idea that he appeared points also to the fact of his humanity. It's not only his deity, but it's also his humanity. There was a point in time, having been conceived of the virgin, of the Holy Spirit, born of the virgin, in which Jesus took on flesh and he was fully man. And in his coming as God in the flesh, his finished work abolished death. Now, what are we to make of this idea of his having abolished death? It basically means that it's been nullified or it's been rendered inoperative. Through his death and his resurrection, what Jesus did was he crushed the power of sin. He crushed the power of death. He freed us so that we don't have to fear it. And we are still subject to physical death unless Jesus returns before we die. And the sting of death, however, has been removed. We are on solid footing. And we don't have to fear anything, even death itself, because nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's a scene in the uh, Pilgrim's Progress, the book, where Christian and hopeful come to the final river of death. They're fearful as they approach the river because they're concerned that the water is going to be over their heads as they approach it. But hopeful goes in first and he calls back to Christian, be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom and it is good. For every follower of Jesus, the bottom of the river is good because we will spend eternity with God in heaven. The bottom of the river is solid. And as Pastor Danny talked about in the introduction uh, message to this letter, we build our lives on Jesus, who is the cornerstone. And when we build our lives on Jesus, who is the cornerstone, then we are on solid footing. God's plan of salvation began in eternity past before time began. But it continued with the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It came to us when he saved us and he called us. It was the moment that we trust in Christ as our Savior. It continues as we live out a holy calling unto the Lord. And it will one day show itself in immortality. It will reveal itself in eternal life when we are in the presence of God forever. And this is good news. It's not only good news. It is the best news of all. In Christ, we have the gift of immortality. We have the eternal and incorruptible nature of life with God. And the gift has been brought to light through the gospel. And God saves us and calls us with a holy calling. But then there's a second idea here, and that is 
God sends us with a message to the world. Let's pick back up reading in verse 11. And he says, for this gospel, I was appointed a herald, apostle, and teacher. Verse 12, and that is why I suffer these things. Think back for a moment to the conversion experience of Saul. While Saul was traveling to Damascus to persecute believers, Jesus appeared to him. He was struck down by a blinding light, and Jesus asked him why he was persecuting him. Saul questioned who it was that was addressing him, and the answer was clear. Acts chapter 9 and verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul listened, and he followed the direction of Jesus. And you remember that he saw a vision of a man named Ananias who would come and restore his sight. And when the Lord instructed Ananias to to meet with Paul, he was afraid because he had heard of what Saul had done to the believers in the persecution. And God told him in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. So Saul was a chosen vessel of Jesus appointed to serve him. And Acts chapter 13 and verse 9 refers to him as Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's an interesting designation of how Paul refers to himself. He refers to himself in Romans chapter 11 as the apostle to the Gentiles. Does that mean that he did not proclaim the good news to the Jews? Not at all. In fact, Part of his strategy was when he would enter into a city, one of the first places he would go was to the synagogue, and he would proclaim the message of the gospel to the Jews. But his calling specifically was to the Gentiles. And Romans 15 and verse 16 says, he chose me to be a servant of Christ Jesus for the Gentiles and to do the work of a priest in the service of his good news. God did this so that the Holy Spirit could make the Gentiles into a holy offering pleasing to him. So here's the connection. Shortly after the fall of man in Genesis 3 and verse 15, we have the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. This is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. We read about the calling of Abram in Genesis chapter 12. And how God made a covenant with him. He told him that he would make of him a great nation. And through that great nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The covenant that God made with Abraham that began in Genesis 12 was reiterated in Genesis 15 and then Genesis 17. And it was a reminder that God was going to raise up this little nation of Israel. And this little nation of Israel was going to be chosen not because they deserved it, not because they were great in number, Not because they had done anything to put themselves in that position, but simply because God chose them out to be his light to the nations. The significance of Israel would be that the Messiah would come through them. And Jesus would be sent from heaven to earth as the Savior of the world, as God in the flesh. But that's not the end of the story, because Jesus lived his life. He was tempted at every point as we are, yet was without sin. He conducted his ministry on this earth. He submitted himself to an awful death on the cross, absorbing the very wrath of God against sin. He died in my place and in your place. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day, he was raised from the dead. 
He eventually ascended back into heaven where he is now at the right hand of God the Father. And the message and the unfolding of the New Testament is the message of the uh, founding of the church, the gathering of God's people from many different places, and then the mission of God's church continues on until one day we're going to gather around the throne in heaven. And around the throne in heaven are going to be all of the people who have called on the name of Jesus for salvation. And the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation, there's going to be people there from every tribe and tongue and nation. And they're going to have one collective chorus, worthy is the lamb. And the message is going to be the worthiness of Jesus who who came and did all of this for us so that we might have a relationship with God. And we have been entrusted the responsibility and the remarkable privilege to communicate this message to the world. Paul refers to himself here as a herald, and that refers certainly to the messages that he preached. A herald is someone who declares the good news. Matthew 24 and verse 14 says, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed or heralded throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And the gospel of the kingdom connects to the return of Jesus and to the end of the story. This word gospel means good news, so it refers to the announcement of good news. And a herald was a messenger in those days. We don't walk around using that word very much, right? We don't say, well, he's a herald. Well, you know, nobody hardly says that in the 21st century. But we say some similar things that would point to the responsibility. And a herald then had a loud voice typically. They'd be sent by kings to deliver messages and proclamations. At times, kings would uh, send heralds ahead of them as they were approaching a certain city in order to proclaim the message of the king and to instruct the people to get ready for the arrival of the king. And uh, history tells us that the Roman Empire believed that the Roman Emperor Augustus was the one who brought ultimate peace because he had rescued Rome from civil strife and from their enemies, but they lifted him to a level that they should have never lifted him to, and they proclaimed it on statues and in songs and in speeches, and that's the environment Paul's stepping into. He's stepping right into the middle of this, and he says, listen, I got a message. I got a proclamation to tell you. Let me tell you this. Jesus is king. That's the message. Jesus is king. And he had a specific role. Timothy had a specific role as a herald of the gospel. And not everyone is a preacher in the proper sense. But more broadly speaking, all of us who know Jesus are ambassadors of him. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He references also the fact that he was an apostle. That refers to the churches that he started and led, and more specifically to the idea that he was a sent one, which is the meaning of the word, or one who is sent out. In the specific and the proper sense, it referred to the 12 apostles of Jesus. And this type of apostle is not present in the church today. There were specific biblical qualifications to be an apostle as an eyewitness of Jesus or as one who was born out of due time as Paul was. In a more general sense, missionaries 
who serve as ambassadors to people who have not yet heard the gospel are serving as sent ones, lowercase a, with an apostolic type ministry, not as apostles, but with an apostolic type ministry to be sent with the good news of Jesus. And that definitely parallels this idea, reaching into the unreached places, reaching those who are unengaged and underserved, reaching those who have not yet heard about the name of Jesus and how they can put their faith and trust in him. And I pray that God would continue to raise up and to send out more sent ones. At the end of our first service this morning, we prayed for one of our families that you know well who is returning to their field of work in South Asia. And we're going to continue to pray for them, but we're also going to pray that God would raise up others who would give their lives to serve him in a similar way. A teacher refers to his role as a teacher of the Gentiles and God's particular call on his life. A teacher gives instruction and is one who is able to explain God's word and be able to clearly instruct the people. Uh, Teaching is a requirement to be a pastor as we follow Jesus, who is the ultimate teacher. Uh, Not everyone has a formal teaching role in the church, and certainly not everyone is gifted to teach spiritually, but we all have the responsibility to teach and to share with others what we know about the Lord. Uh, Pastor Danny talked last week about the importance of disciples making disciples. So that means that you are not intended to be a repository of information. You're not just supposed to be filling your head with a bunch of knowledge. You're to be filling your head and your heart with the truth about Jesus so that you can teach others. It starts in your own family. It starts in the ministry God gives you in the church. And then it extends out from there in the community uh, and in the world. Now, all of this had come at a great price in Paul's life. And we are not promised a life of ease either. But we are promised that God will be with us every step of the way. And God sends us with a message to the world. So here's my question for you. What is your testimony for Jesus? And are you faithfully sharing it with others? Are you faithfully sharing the good news from the word and from how God has changed your life? And then there's a third and final idea. God secures us by guarding what has been entrusted to us. Look again at verse 12. He says, but I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Paul could have easily been worried and uncertain about his life. I mean, the man's in a Roman dungeon. He's awaiting persecution and execution under Nero. He had nothing left. He didn't even have a coat to keep him warm. And someone said that he did not know at this point that centuries upon centuries later that men would name their sons Paul and their dogs Nero. He was an aged man, lonely, chained to a Roman guard. And yet Paul profoundly communicates a blessed assurance in his faith in God. And he says, Timothy, follow my example. Not only you to follow my example, but you teach the church to follow the example of Christ. And he says, I know who I have believed in. This carries the idea of trusting in 
It's the metaphor of a depositor depositing his pledge with one that he trusts. Have you been following the news at all? You heard the story about the bank issues in California. And on Friday, March the 10th, the Silicon Valley Bank of Santa Clara, California, with 17 branches and $200 billion in total assets, was closed by regulators who appointed the FDIC as the receiver. It was the second largest bank failure in U.S. history behind only Washington Mutual in the year 2008, which many of us remember quite well. Now, with a government takeover, it was renamed and reopened the following Monday as the Deposit Insurance National Bank of Santa Clara. Now, there are many reasons as to why all that happened that I won't take the time to go into right now. But apparently, in the United States of America, all you have to do is print extra money, and then ultimately, we, the taxpayers, will bear the cost. But that's another subject for another day. But I want to make this point about it. Even an earthly investment that might look good from the outside might not be a good investment. When you invest your life in the things of God and you trust in Jesus for all that you have and all that you are and all that you hope to be, you can have confidence in the one in whom you have believed. I love the way John puts it in 1 John 5 and 11 and following. He says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life and the one who does not have the son of God does not have life. And then he says this in verse 13. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Church, I'm here to tell you today that you can know that you have eternal life. And the way that you can know that you have eternal life is if you put your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus only, he will give you eternal life. It's certain, not by your works, not by your efforts. You cannot save yourself. You can't do enough good works to save you. The shed blood of Jesus is the only acceptable payment for your sins. And the starting point for this kind of confidence is faith in Jesus. And it does necessitate faith to deposit your life and entrust it to Jesus. And I know enough to know that in a group this size today, and maybe even people who are listening in online, there are some people who have not yet entrusted themselves to Jesus. And I'd simply ask you, what are you waiting on? He will save your soul. He will save you from your sins if you will trust in him. Paul says, have believed. That's an important phrase. And the reason it's an important phrase is because it's in the perfect tense, meaning to permanently put his trust and confidence in Jesus. Paul was convinced that the divine power of God could not only save him, but could also secure him and keep him. What is it that Paul had committed or entrusted to Jesus? The word here for entrusted is used only this time in the whole of the New Testament. And it means to put something in the trust of another. And I think what it means is to put the entirety of your life in the hands of God and to trust in Jesus for everything. And I want to dispel the notion in this moment that there's any such thing as a delineation between the sacred and the secular. 
Somehow or another, people think that they can divide their lives and live and think in one realm according to the secular, and yet in the other realm, think according to the spiritual. As a follower of Jesus, there's only one realm, and it's all spiritual. And then it applies to your life in every other regard. And I think that's why there's so much confusion today in the church, and there's so many believers that are waffling on their convictions, and they're capitulating to the world, and they're falling into the same patterns of thinking in the world because they've not entrusted themselves to Christ and developed the mind of Christ, received the mind of Christ in a fully committed life as a follower of his. And that's what God is calling us to. And I love the way William McDonald put it. He said, perhaps it is best to take the expression in its broadest sense. Paul was persuaded that his entire case was in the best of hands. Even as he faced death, he did not have misgivings. Jesus Christ was his almighty Lord, and with him there could be no defeat or failure. There was nothing to worry about. Paul's salvation was sure, and so was the ultimate success of his service to Christ here on this earth. You see, he committed his life, his work, those he served, everything to God for safekeeping. And you can have a firm and abiding assurance because Jesus is completely trustworthy. Now the day reference here in this passage certainly points to the return of Jesus. And then I think beyond that, it's pointing to judgment. Now we know that we're not going to be judged for our sins because our sins have already been judged at the cross. When our faith is in Jesus, the blood is applied to us. If we had to answer for our sins a second time, it would mean that the work of Jesus on the cross was not sufficient, but we will be held accountable for how we've lived our lives. And I think Paul is looking forward to that day and thinking about how he wanted to be a good steward of what God had entrusted to him. He lived and worked in light of that day in an anticipation of meeting Jesus. And I think about the parable of the talents. The talents were committed to different servants and they had to give an account of what they were given. And whether you've been given one talent or three talents or five talents, you don't want to take what you have and go bury it in a hole somewhere. You want to use it. You want to invest it. You want to see God use it for his glory. So I ask you today, have you invested your life and your service to God and your eternity to God for safekeeping? I close with this. I know whom I have believed. I know him. I believed in him. I am confident in him. A man by the name of Origen was born in the second century AD. Origen was an early Christian theologian who lived in Alexandria, Egypt. When he was 17 years old, his father was about to die as a martyr for Jesus. This 17 year old boy, Origen, wrote his father a letter and he exhorted his father. Leonidas was his father's name, and he said this to him in his letter. Be faithful to Jesus Christ right to the end, and he will give you a crown of life. And then he wrote Revelation. And then he said this, don't give in, but be faithful. His father did die as a martyr by beheading. Origen himself wanted to die in that persecution with his father as a witness 
as a testimony, as a martyr for Christ. But as the story goes, his mother hid his clothes. He looked everywhere for his clothes and he couldn't find them. And he had a different kind of shame at that moment. He didn't want to run into the street without his clothes. And so he couldn't go and participate with his father. But the end of the story is that when Origen was 69 years old, he did in fact give his life as a martyr because of persecution under a different Roman emperor. And his words in the letter rang forth to his father, but they ring forth to us as well. Don't give in, be faithful. Don't give in, be faithful. You can do that if your hope and your trust is in Jesus. And your entire life is in his hands. You're all of your eternity. All your hopes, your dreams, everything in between belongs to him. Don't give in. Be faithful. Father, we thank you today for the message and the ministry and the reminder of Paul to young Timothy at the church at Ephesus. We thank you for people then who were willing to stand firm and not be ashamed of Jesus. Every day we are faced with situations where we might be ashamed of our faith. Help it not to be the case for us. Help us not to give in. Help us to be faithful. I pray today if there are any of the sound of my voice or listen to this message even later on who have not entrusted themselves to Jesus, who have not believed in him for forgiveness and salvation and to receive the gift of eternal life, I pray they'd not wait, but they say yes to him, receiving all God that you have for their lives and for their eternity. Father, help us as a church to be people who are loving, but people who are bold, clear, compelling as we share the good news about Jesus. I do pray, God, you would continue to raise up faithful ambassadors here in this church who will represent you well in the community and that you would raise up people to be sent out to places like South Asia and South America and other parts of the world where there's great need and where the nations are being reached. May we be faithful here and may we be faithful to the ends of the earth. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.